Hello, hello, all podcast listeners. Not usually how I start an episode. Just wanted to throw in a quick message as an intro here. The next handful of these episodes are going to be from my archive when this was a show at Trent Radio. Not sponsored, not anything. I own all the rights to all the material that is quote-unquote original. I just wanted to get these out there in quick succession, give you a little bit more content to chew on. Not as polished, but I do like the openness and unedited nature and quality of these episodes. So, without further ado, I hope you do enjoy. Let me know your thoughts as always. The following audio was originally recorded live and broadcast through the facilities of Trent Radio on November 22nd, 2019. As always, I'm Justin Evangelo. This is Disenabled, the program where we enable the disabled. So happy to be back at it again for all those who routinely listen weekly. And I am also thrilled to have an in-studio guest who, as I said last week, whenever she introduces herself, introduces herself under a new job title, it seems, with different wording. She's been with me from JK all the way to grade 12, helped me graduate, and arguably has taught me more than any teacher I've ever had. Uh, we'll, we'll delve into that a little later on as the interview progresses. So everybody, Anne Lands, great to have you on today. Thank you, Justin. Um, let's start with the basics like I always do, as you've taught me before. Uh, start with the basics. What jobs have you had working with people who have physical disabilities? Well, let's see. There's paid jobs and there are unpaid jobs. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's run through the list. So uh, our paid jobs would be basically working as an orientation and mobility instructor and intake worker for Canadian National Institute for the Blind in the Peterborough area. And then at the, in the school systems as a teacher of students who are blind and visually impaired. Okay. What... What responsibilities as, uh, let, let's go chronologically then, as an ONM or Orientation and Mobility Instructor, what were your, because you've been out of it for how long now? Uh, 20 some odd years. Okay, <laughs> so what were your basic duties as? For working what, with CNIB? Yes. Okay, for CNIB, my basic duty was to teach independent travel training for persons who had vision loss. This would enable them to travel safely and efficiently through uh, the outdoor environment, going shopping, going, doing their business, mm -hmm. using uh, buses, crossing roads, um, getting to school if they were high school or university students, getting to work if they were people working. And it was basically teaching uh, people skills to use as they go into the sighted world. Okay. A lot of people take that for, for granted, I think, or write it off. I'm going to talk about this in, in future episodes with people who have certain physical disabilities, whether it be hearing or, or sight impairment, but 
in your experience, do people, fully bodied people, take it for granted in, in terms of everyday travel? That's something that you may not think about in your day-to-day -day life. And, and then when they're f not forced to, but when they do see someone with a, a physical Im impairment trying to navigate successfully, is there sort of a, a type of shock that washes over them or no, I, I never really thought about that. As I think with any type of impairment or disability, people are just unaware mm -hmm. um, until they come face to face with it, as you just mentioned. Yeah. And <clears throat> it, it just doesn't dawn on them. I think in a way we're a very egocentric society and it's hard for us to get out of ourselves and see the issues that other, other people might uh, come across. Um, there's a lot of, I think, as I've always said, you have to <laughs> have a good sense of humor. For sure. If you have any kind of impairment or disability and you're out in the real world, uh, because you will meet up with people who uh, attempt to be helpful and are maybe not so helpful, mm -hmm. not <laughs> because they just don't understand what you need and they didn't bother to ask you first, mm -hmm. or people that maybe just ignore you and just hope you'll go away for sure <laughs> or yeah. not be there yeah, yeah. so that they because again not because they're being mean or malicious or anything it's just that they don't understand and i don't know it's like you're an alien from space i guess they don't know you know the language mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting because on, on previous segments of the show i've talked about ignorance and that seems to be my huge key word and people all honestly mistake ignorance for being rude and no it, that's that's not what the word means as i've said time and time again it means lacking in knowledge and that's where a lot of what you just described the, the behaviors come from and it, from your perspective working in an environment where you're teaching someone with uh, a physical impairment how to get around and that they can in fact do it and it's not as complicated as originally thought, what seems to be the the attitude of most of the clients you've had in the past? Well, going back way to the beginning, when I learned, we were taught at CNIB, and I was immersed into a, what I guess you would call a blind culture, mm -hmm. and which was, I think, the best way to learn. They have since moved it to uh, Mohawk College, I believe, but... At that point, it, right off the bat, I can remember, I'm going off on a tangent here, no, Justin, go, go, am go, I usual? No, go for it. I mean, I want, it, I want you on for more than one segment. <laughs> this is why. I <laughs> At any rate, we, we went in, there was four of us from different parts of, uh, one from Toronto and two from New Brunswick, actually. And we were sitting at a table at CNIB Bayview, and this, this is where people lived there. They also worked there. They were all blind. We were the odd man out. And I remember first sitting there and I heard somebody explain to us and said, oh, they're the sighted. Hmm. And suddenly the roles were reversed. I'm not a human being. I'm not real. I'm the sighted. Uh, and all of a sudden everything was different. We had to play by their rules. And to this day, language is so important that we don't talk about the deaf. It's persons who are hard of hearing or deaf. Right. Because we're people first. And um, so when we uh, – this is a little tangent. But anyways, so right away you begin to learn 
some of the issues that people that have disabilities face, and it, and it hit you right off the bat. So when we were taught to teach independent travel, we had to do everything under blindfold. Mm-hmm. We had to eat, we had to do everything, and the instructor said, who was, who was from England, he said, and he was mean. <laughs> well, <I'll, laughs> no, yeah. He, was, he yeah. was very adamant mm-hmm. that you never take off, no matter what happens, you will never take off your blindfold. And I remember early on, we were in a big building, McMillan Center, which is like a hospital. Mm-hmm. And I had the blindfold on and I was going down a corridor somewhere and the fire alarm went. And by geez, I never took that blindfold off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and unfortunately, one of the things I noticed was not one person as they all rushed to go outside, not one person offered to assist me. Wow. Yeah. So one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is when we were, when we were taught orientation and mobility, we had to do it because we had to prove to ourselves we could do it. I had to travel all through Toronto, subways, uh, buses, going into stores, etc. We had to prove it to ourselves that, that we could do it before we knew we could teach it to somebody else. And I think that was hugely important. No Plus, doubt. it allowed us to see the issues that people with, without sight, in my case, mm. were, would face when they were traveling. So, Well, aren't those stories interesting? <laughs> no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting that you bring that up because... It's, well, I mean, putting someone in as much as or as a similar perspective as possible is hugely important because, I mean, obviously it, it scares them half to death. Um, and you, you really, I, I imagine, I mean, I've never done it before, but I imagine you do get a taste of, of what it is like to try to at least walk a mile in the person's shoes who has the impairment. Exactly. Right. We, we can't ever know. And this is why he, he was so adamant about not taking off a blindfold. We cannot know what it's like to be blind, but we can try and get some of the feelings, try and, and see the problems that arise so that we can find the skills to help somebody who has a uh, visual impairment overcome those obstacles. And it was very important. And there's nothing like being scared to death yeah. out on the yeah. roadway <laughs> to mm-hmm. make you very aware of how your student might be feeling at that particular point in time. For sure. You want to try to put yourself in their shoes as much as possible. And so when you would take people out, would, there, would they usually be fearful or, or was it a mixed bag of, of clientele? Well, it's, it, it, everybody's different, and it's quite interesting. Um, I would say mostly fearful because mm-hmm. it, it is a very frightening thing. If anybody who has ever been truly lost in, say, the bush, in the forest, they will know it's a panic situation. It's yeah. literally a panic. The heart rate goes. Everything goes. It's a very panicked way. of You'll just stop because you don't know where you are. You have no clue. So most people are panicked and we start off very slowly and you start off indoors however there are a few cases i've had <laughs> where they've been the opposite they've been people who've been either very athletic or very uh in control 
and had professions where they were very much in control, and they felt, oh, well, there's nothing to this. Right. And they, it went the opposite way. But again, you seem to hit a wall mm-hmm. first, <laughs> literally sometimes. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, and then you start to listen to your teacher. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then then we come down. But yeah, there's definitely a fear factor. Of course. And I mean, that's understandable based on what you just said, be, because of the, the fact, um, well, obviously not having sight and then going out into the to the real world. I, I think the scariest part about that was your fire drill story and no one helping you, whether that be because they saw the blindfold or or because they they thought oh you can you can take it off or it's it's just a panic. And I the think they to... just rushed by. Yeah, I don't they, even think yeah, they noticed because right, right. I had, I was definitely using the long cane and yep. I was along the side of the wall. <laughs> and so, then uh, yep. So, but again, look at once you get that once you get over the fear and once you know how to do it and once you know how to use your skills, your sense of independence, your sense of being able to say, hey, I am in control. In that situation at McMillan Center, I just remembered what the teacher said, and I just mm-hmm. kept going. Yeah. And, you know, I finally asked somebody and just kept going. I, fo- I just followed where everybody was going. <laughs> yeah, obviously, just followed the crowd. Just followed the crowd. Yeah, went in doubt, went in doubt. So you learn to problem solve. <laughs> that's, One that's, of my that's favorite huge. things. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's huge in, in the realm of people who have, well, any any disability, yes, cognitive, or cognitive, physical, or otherwise. Yeah. yeah. You got to, and, and some, sometimes that involves huge improvisation. What exactly, if if there was one key factor or multiple, what made you make the transition to the academic side of things? Uh well, it was quite interesting. A number of us, and it wasn't just myself, there was a number of us as O&Ms in Ontario that made that leap, which was quite interesting because there was quite a divide at one point between CNIB, who dealt with people in the community, and people who, teachers who, or academics, who dwell, uh, dealt with people in an academic setting, but didn't necessarily, they weren't um, crossing so they were one or the other. And that meant the student was either one or the other. Right. So uh, a lot of us said, well, this is crazy. You know, let's get into the academic part and bring our O&M and our CNIB and our uh, awareness of what being blind is to the academic world. And I think that made a huge, huge difference. One of, one of these people uh, ended up as a coordinator for... Uh, w. Ross McDonald, the ministry That's, school. Wow. Okay. Susan Howe. Very significant so accomplishment. A lot of them did really, you know, this is what we wanted to do because uh, their students were either one or the other, and it was difficult. Once they come out of a ministry school, they weren't, they didn't know anything about the real world, or vice versa, or when, you know, schools in, um, like if you were to go to your home school in your neighborhood. Mm. They didn't necessarily have the expertise to know what to do with somebody who was blind other than teach them Braille. So we needed this crossover. For sure. So you, you saw a ton of lacking, let's well, just say, knowledge, new, right? It was all new, though, because all of a sudden these schools opened up. My time being a dinosaur, in my, <laughs> in my career span, this was all new. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we, were, we were, had to find our way. For sure. 
what and I mean the the way it, the way you're talking about it doesn't make it sound like it was already paved. You had to. That's right. You we had were, to found. We you had just, to found. Yeah. Right? We floundered along. Yeah. And so, how many years did you work in on the academic side? And what exactly was? Because I, I can never. When when someone asked me, and I and I do bring you up in conversation, believe it or not, from time to time, what was your official job title when you worked in the academic sector? Okay. Uh, in this, well, different school boards call it different things. Okay. So okay. Um, I would be called in one school board, I was called a vision teacher, All right. which I kind of prefer. I like that one. Mm-hmm. At uh, PBNC, Peterborough, Victoria, North Ireland, Maryland, it was called teacher of the blind, which I don't... Uh, I wanted them to change. Can you explain why? I mean, that's an well, interesting point Well, here we go back to what itself. I said at the beginning. I don't like being called the sighted. Right. Why would somebody want mm. to be called the, the blind? blind. Mm. You are not a person. You are a thing. Yeah. Or the deaf or something. Right. So, yes, uh, language is very important. <laughs> and I think there was probably a monetary thing because all their letterhead and everything else was written as that. And then so they didn't want to change it. Mm-hmm. So you worked in it for, let's just oh, say, how many? 20 plus years. Okay, so, plus so years. at least two decades, if not more. And you just stepped down in June because you, for some reason, wanted to see me through, which is great. I, I greatly appreciate that. What prerequisite education was needed in order to get a job like this? Because a lot of people say, well, that's great that we have these advocates and they're they're doing great things. But... For people who want to actually help those with physical disabilities or collaborate with them in a work setting and have a job that's oriented around the field, they don't know what education is needed in order to actually pursue a career like you've had. Now, that's an interesting one. In the United States, uh, they're way ahead of us in, in recognizing that people who deal with sensory losses and and that sort of thing is that they're a very specialized group and they have a specialized knowledge and they they recognize it in the states in the states i'd have my phd and everything but they don't recognize anything in canada so even when so when i went to the academic level as as opposed to cnib even though i knew braille even though i knew all these things i none of it i was given nothing Okay. So I had already had my teacher's certificate. So as far as education went, if you're going into the uh, educational field, you need to get your teacher of educa- uh, your teacher's degree. Then you can go into your specialist degree where from there you can take courses in, it's called Blind 1, Blind 2, and Blind 3, or at least it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, you take those over the years until you get your specialist. But... Unfortunately, <laughs> when you take blind one, uh, when I did it, all you got was you learned to do alphabetic braille. Yeah. That I was it. The, I know where this is And going. then you were allowed to go and teach. Mm-hmm. So that might have been okay. But mm-hmm. if you got somebody like yourself who was in kindergarten, who was an academic student, and that's all I knew was to teach you braille – then you're, you would have missed a lot. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so now that's changed over again, but you see that's changed over the years. And it was just interesting because just before I did retire, 
uh, there were questionnaires that came out to teachers like myself saying, what should we put into our specialist courses? What do we need? Right. And so, again, it was a learning it's a learning curve for everybody. Speaking of Braille, this is this will be definitely tangential. And um, okay, I, I I wanted to bring this up because I know you can really speak to it because you've been. I don't know how sharp your Braille skills are now, but they had <laughs> to be when I was, especially when I was in the STEM courses, science, technology, engineering, math type. Because uh, as Caleb Hunt mentioned, the materials usually are in a, a Braille type format, tactile. Um, I wanted to talk to I wanted to talk to you about this uh, in in another segment, but it's come up now. Unified English Braille. Um, people don't really <laughs> you understand. You just really want to get me yeah. started, don't you? <laughs> uh, people don't really understand how. Well, first of all, they some people don't even know what Braille is. Second, they don't understand that there's multiple codes of it for one language. Can you speak to? Let's let's go for a general sense so people can you know who are listening can can get a, a general sense and let's not try to delve too deep into specifics. I mean, if you go that way, that's okay. I'm more than willing to talk. But can you speak to? I mean, uh, to to preface this, there's unified English Braille, which is basically trying to, as I understand it, put two Braille codes together and um, change the actual standardizations of Nemeth, which is for math usually, and uh, literary, which is for writing. That's how I explain it to people. Can you speak to how that may be affecting people who have STEM jobs that are sight impaired? Okay. So we look at Braille, and, and it started out, everything was, you had text, and when we think back, Text was basically just text, no pictures, no diagrams, none of these little side tables and little blocks here and there. And so we had, there was a code, which was a, a Braille literary code, and it was standard for the English language for, well, we were in North America and the British do it a little different. In fact, all over the world, they do they little do. Yeah, differences, it's a, little, a little bit modified. Which at the time wasn't such a big deal. However, with the advent, then we had Nemeth Code, which was developed specifically for the sciences. And um, you have to understand how Braille is read: is that it's read one character. Your fingers only cover one character at a time. So. In order to be efficient Braille readers, you contract everything. Therefore, we have what we call contracted Braille. It's kind of like writing shorthand. So also we have a memory system. And all the, this is all coming in, but what happened was we ended up with computers and the Internet. And suddenly we have a global system. So now people over the, all over the world, again, we're becoming a global community. We realize Braille wasn't accessible, say our North American Braille wasn't accessible to English Braille readers, to somebody in Africa, to somebody in New Zealand. So they wanted to unify at least English language Braille, which made sense. Mm -hmm. um, but also we started with the internet and, and there was now a need for, we only have six dots and they have to mean everything. They have to mean punctuation, they have to mean letters, uh, they mean numbers or numerals. So, uh, all the math, uh, like operation signs, et cetera, et cetera. So they've, because they only have six dots, 
they've tried to reconfigure because now we have to have ways of writing internet um, oh what do you call them you know me and my internet sort of, literacy it's just the URLs yeah. you know anything you like are, that yeah URLs and, and different it, yeah. things like and that then, and then yeah. now we have phones mm-hmm. you know and so what happened was it kind of ran out of dots so when they tried to unify everything they came up with a unified English braille and the problem is <laughs> they didn't they sacrifice what they're going what what's happened is they've sacrificed speed and efficiency and ease particularly in by taking away nemeth code and they're still doing research and what and it's very interesting because i keep up with the research and the research is we can or you can i can't my memory's not that that good <laughs> but we have 15 seconds and you can memorize um, 10 or so characters. So when you're doing a math problem, because you have to remember it, we can't just glance down and see the whole problem like I can. Right. There is a scientific basis for how much you can remember and how many, and in the sequence, over a certain length of time. And there's a lot of people who disagree with the Unified English Braille for uh, STEM subjects, because it puts in too many extra characters, and you're not, you don't have that block anymore. So in the States, in Canada, they've adopted it as unified English Braille, as that's what they want. However, in the States, who are so far ahead of us, they have not adopted it. It's still out. They still want Nemeth okay. on its own. And it's unfortunate because they had a code called Nubs, which was developed with Nemeth code, and it was a far easier system, but they took unified English Braille. So, I've talked to you about this for countless hours, and as we close this tangent to move on to something else, um, you talked about how it wasn't so much a hard hit for literary people who were had sight impairment who were doing things involving literary writing per se, but a lot of people who were in the sciences and, and technologies because if they're using unified English Braille, which most of them don't, I've talked to a couple myself, then they're forced to use so many other characters and, and draw out their equations so much longer. Yes, and you get you get lost in, in it just takes longer, it takes more materials. Um, you can't, you don't have that block. It doesn't, it, you don't read math the same. It doesn't sound the same. Yeah. Like when, when we do math, that's why I just refuse to do it with you, <laughs> mm-hmm. that we stayed with our Nemeth code because it's just so much easier to deal with. And it's unfortunate because I think students coming up now will get so bogged down in the Braille code itself, they'll not want to take these subjects. Well, and that's, sure. my, and that's, uh, no, you, that's you, my irritation. Yeah, you don't want to de-incentivize it by making it unnecessarily hard difficult. or difficult. And, that, and that's kind of what's happened, is what's happening. And that's the argument for in the States, too, in the United States, that that's their big argument. And it's interesting because the people that want to keep Nemeth are the people using it. The people that go for Unified English Braille are the people that are producing the Braille two different things. And are the people producing the Braille fully sighted or are they? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's my other irritation. Uh The users are not getting what they want necessarily. It's interesting that people who have full vision or most of their vision are dictating 
basically the direction and the uh, the code that people who have the impairment, the sight impairment, have to use. I I, I don't understand. But that's that. because we go into technology. So yeah. who are the ones running technology sure. Sure. and developing the programs? Mm-hmm. They're the ones that have the sight, and therefore that's why it's going <laughs> that way, kind of. All right, we are running a little bit tight for time. So I'll ask one question and it is loaded. That's why I'm hoping to have you on for, well, for good another thing one. Only two minutes left here. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's most rewarding? Let's just say what, what has been most rewarding because you've, as I've said, you've retired now, what has been most rewarding in terms of working on the, in, in the academic field with people who have uh, an assortment of, of impairments at the end of the day, when, when all is said and done, what's, what's most rewarding? For you as an individual. It's always the students and their independence. And to see them move on to university or move on out and have, have the, um, uh, the ability to do it and the skills to do it, but also the, the confidence to do it. And to go out because they're the ones that are going to um, make others, are the sighted people, in my case, in our case, mm-hmm. Um, sighted people or the other people aware of the fact that just because you have an impairment or a disability doesn't mean that you can't do everything just as well as the next person. For sure. You might do it in a different way. Yeah. (laughs) But you can do it. And it's only um, by, if you get the right uh, education, you can do it. Very motivating. Thank you so much. Ann Lands, everybody. Uh, so happy to have you on today. This was a lot of fun and tangential as usual. Thank you so much. As cliche as it sounds, who knows how different my scholastic career or academic record would have been if people like Ann Lands hadn't helped pave the way for not just me, but the next generation of blind students coming up through any sort of education system, whether it be Catholic, public, or otherwise. So thank you, thank you, thank you a thousand times over. If you're interested in learning more about Braille and the different codes of it, I've linked some basic resources in the description, basic definitions of what each code is, UEB, nubs. I had to read up on nubs, really interesting stuff. You can find that in the episode's show notes. Uh, before signing off, I want to give a huge shout-out to Maxwell Ivy Jr., co-host. I'm pretty sure he's the co-host uh, and co-founder of the What's Your Excuse Network, a disability-based podcasting hosting network for adding Disenabled to the roster of podcasts you can listen to. So thank you, Max, for that. Always good to get more ears on the podcast and the content that I'm putting out there, and it's always nice to network and make some friends in a professional capacity along the way. You can find the What's Your Excuse Network on the interwebs at wyexcuse.com, linked below. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, don't forget to share it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Listen to previous episodes if you feel so inclined. Uh, Rate and review as well. You can reach out to me personally. Let's talk all things disability podcasting or disabled podcasting. How about that? At disenabled.podcast at gmail.com. I think that's all I had to say there. Again, that email linked in the description as well as everything else I mentioned. With the self-promotion out of the way, folks, as usual, until next time, cheers.